But if you would turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, we'll finish chapter 2 this morning, uh, and then we'll finish all of chapter 3 next week, um, which will conclude the sermon series on for the life of the church, for the life of the world. And then our um, Wes Calton will be preaching on the 21st of August, and then uh, we'll start a sermon series in the book of Daniel. Uh, which will take us all the way up and through the election. And the reason that we're doing the book of Daniel is I want us to have a framework for how to think about um, political and national worldviews. So here's what you're not going to get from me in that sermon series. I just want to sedate it clearly up front. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. And I will tell you that my thought is, is there, there is no more biblical one to vote for than another at this juncture. And so we can fight about that if you like, it'd be fun, uh, but I'm not going to do it from up here. Uh, we all have our reasons for which way we would go. Um, me voting for Ross Perot, you voting for whoever you're going to vote for. And, uh, and so there you go. I've let the cat out of the bag. Be not shocked. Um, I just like the alligator foot. I feel like that's probably the most biblical thing anybody's ever done. And so um, uh, anyway, uh, we are going to hopefully help us think biblically uh, about how God does what he does from the 30,000-foot view instead of getting so tangled up and forgetting that he is the God of centuries. He is the God of eternity. This is but a pittance in light of all that. And so that's what we hope Daniel will do is help to equip us. Um, if you are hoping that I will at long last solve the 70 weeks and the little goat and the 10 horns. Yeah, let me just help you. I'm not going to solve that for you and we don't have enough time to do that. And so I won't be digging way deep into the prophecy side of Daniel, but we will talk about its implications for the sovereignty of God and what that means. Okay. All right. So you have that to look forward to. So you should receive a devotional in the mail. And let me say this, give a plug for the devotional. The devotional, it's critical for every series we've ever done. It will be even more critical for the book of Daniel because we will be reading large chunks of Scripture every week because we're going to do a chapter a week. I know some of those chapters are like 56 verses. I won't get to all the verses. I'll key in on certain sections. That's just part of it. But it'll be helpful if you read it on your own and are keeping up with it. And it would also be helpful for your family and for your children to help keep up. Use it for your family devotional time. Okay? All right, that's enough of, of the announcement stuff. All right, so in Titus 2, what we're coming to is a section in verses 11 through 15 where Paul is going to give the theological reason for everything that he said previously. And in fact, if you, if you look at it, all he's doing is restating what he said in the greeting. Remember, he says, I am a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus, right? So as to build up those in the faith with knowledge of truth and godliness who have founded themselves essentially on the eternity that they have in Christ alone. Like he, he stated very clearly up front, my whole goal is to help you grow in the grace that you have been given through no fault of your own. And I want you to grow in that so that the Cretans will come to know Jesus. Right? And what kind of people are the Cretans? They're nice folks. They're kind of like if Leave It to Beaver were planted somewhere in Greece, right? No. They're more boys in the hood type. They're more, this is more, they're just rough and tumble. They kill people. They lie. They steal. They do everything they can to destroy, right? They're, 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 they're kind of like the Dukes of Hazard, but even meaner, right? And so, so, so just to make sure everybody's in. So, um, so it's a rough group of people, and they're broken. And they're the kind of people that good church folk wouldn't want around. 
They're the kind of people that you want, wouldn't want anywhere near your children's ministry. They're the kind of people that you wouldn't want to eat with, probably. And yet, Paul says, what a wonderful place to plant a church given what Jesus is about. Jesus is about redemption, right? Every tongue, tribe, and nation. There is no group of people who are more out than another group of people, with the exception of one. The furthest out seems to be the religiously self-righteous. And it's the religiously self-righteous who would say, no, I don't think those people belong here. I don't think their kind belong in our midst. I don't think their style of worship is good for us. I don't think the way that they do what they do is something we want to be around. Thus limiting mission and missionality, right? So be careful. Be careful that what lurks in your heart is not religious self-righteousness because that will carry you further from Jesus than anything. And harden you. And remember, are we called to every culture? No, we're in Kennesaw, Georgia. Right? We're in Kennesaw, Georgia, and you come from Marietta and uh, Dallas and Woodstock and uh, Ackworth and various parts unknown. Right? So we're, 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 not in, uh, we're not in Morocco, so we don't have Moroccan-style worship. Uh, we, we are not in other contexts. We're in Kennesaw. So this is our context. So I'm not suggesting that it's your job to save everyone. No, that's Jesus's job, actually, to reach all those things. The question is, where has he called us, and what has he called us to, and how has he called us to do it? How has he equipped us? So don't go taking on the weight of the world when it's already been born on the cross. So the question for us is, as we think this through, is, what is it that God has called us to do here in this place? What, what specifically is it that he, what gifts and talents has he given to you? Because it's not all on me, by the way. You know, one thing that we've noticed anecdotally, which is very interesting, is when a visitor visits the church, right? And I speak to them, I talk to them, I invite them to something. It means literally nothing as to whether or not they come back. It really doesn't. And they'll tell me that. What matters is whether or not you welcome them in here. And if you don't, guess what they don't do? They usually don't fight to come back. They're not going to fight to get in. And so we all have a role to play. We all have gifts and abilities. And we all have something that we can contribute to the mission to which we have been called here in Kennesaw, Georgia, right? In this region, in the Cobb County, Cherokee County area, just to spread out a little bit. We, ha we have things that we can be doing, and so we need to be thinking about that in light of this letter, because remember, the life of the church is for what? The life of the world. It is to be a city on a hill. It is to shine. Now, we have some connection further away, right, through the missionaries that we support, but there's only so much we can do. We're, we're supporting them. There's only so much we can do with our gifts and our talents here. So please do not take on the weight of this more than is being put upon you by the Holy Spirit himself. Now, for us, as Paul is going to be getting into the theological reasons for why we, we are to be who we are. Remember last week he talked about the older men and the older women and the younger women and the younger men and all of their roles within the context of the church and the world and how they're to live in such a way that displays the glory of God. This is the reason. This is the freight, because if you were to read that, some of you, as you read it, you were like, 
I don't know. I, can't, I don't know if I can keep up with all this. Especially for the men for whom you may be thinking about being an elder. You're thinking, I can barely, barely, and I'm not even doing a very good job of, but keeping up with my family. Much less the broader family of the church. Right? But this, this is what says, this is possible. And you're not being asked to do anything that your Savior has not already done and accomplished and will empower you in. Now listen to what Paul says. Let me, let me read the text to us. We're going to take it all in one chunk. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Listen to what Philip H. Towner, who's a New Testament scholar, says about this passage. The point of the theological passage to follow meaning Titus 2, 11 through 15, is that the life Paul expects Cretan believers to live in this context is not an ordinary life in the least. Did you hear that? To be a Christian is to be instantaneously countercultural, whether you express it or not. It, it, that's just, it comes with the territory. If you are going to take the name of God on you in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, you just instantly became countercultural. Now, how you express that, how you hide that, that's how the story goes from there, right? It just is countercultural to a fallen world. Now, we saw in the Cretan culture, right? Remember, Cretan culture was that, that you would throw these great big parties and anything went and you invited people in to do all this crazy teaching because it was the vogue thing to do. There are things just like that for us today at every level of society. There are things that are in vogue to do at the middle school level, right? There just is. There's a, there's a pressure to be and do certain things at the middle school level that is unique. And to be a Christian in middle school, for middle schoolers, let me ask you, how many of you, like, you love making sure people know you're a Christian in middle school? Like, that's not going to get you made fun of at all, even at a Christian school. How about high schoolers? Are, are there things, are there pressures upon high schoolers for, from a cultural perspective, pressures upon you to do and think and act in certain ways and deny certain things? Like, it's interesting to me, my daughter, who um, is now a, a sophomore slash junior slash senior, depending on how you talk about her, where she's at and what program at FSU, I, one of the things that was interesting to me is the worst possible thing that you could be declared in high school, this is just a few short years ago, was that you would be declared a goody-goody. Like the worst thing that you, you, it didn't, you could be anything else was fine, but to be declared a good person who cared about values and cared about morals, that was, that was horrible. God forbid you be declared with that scarlet letter. Is it different now, high schoolers? No. It's exactly the same. Exactly the same. 
How about college students? Are there things that are, you're being pressured to think about and do in ways in which you're called to relate to one another, in ways in which you're called to relate to the world and think about things that is being pressed upon you, right? How cool is it to be a Christian at the college level? Is it, has it gotten any cooler since high school? No, it's not. If you're unwilling to get on Tinder and do all those other kind of things or yik yak or whatever it is now, Pokemon Go, I don't know. I can't keep up with everything. You're just, you're just, you're just meaningless. You're meaningless. And you're, you're, you're not even thinking. All right, let's, let's go post-college. It's gotten easier, right? Older people. It's a lot easier to be a Christian now, isn't it? No, actually it's not. It's not easy to be a Christian in your workplace. It's not easy to be a Christian where you play. It's not easy to be a Christian where you even serve, actually, because it is countercultural by its very nature. So this is critical for us to understand. You're never going to make it fit the culture because the culture itself is fallen. Do you understand? It's never going to be okay to be a Christian until Jesus comes back. You just need to know that. It's never going to be easier. Only when all of sin is removed and everything is made new, which is why Paul says that we look forward to the blessed hope at the appearing. Right? That's in there. So here are Philip Towners making it clear, if you are going to be a Christian, you are instantly, and you must accept, you are countercultural. It is the product of the Christ event. What Christ has done is unique, right? Who else has died for you to be able to redeem you for an eternity? What other Savior has done that for you? And if not him, what Superman is coming who greater than Jesus will come? There's not one coming. If he is insufficient for you, that's a problem because he is all you have, all we have. And he goes on, and the implication is that the gospel creates people capable of living within human society, observing its institutions, speaking its language, embracing its good values while reshaping and retooling others in order to bring redemption to it. That means that we can navigate the culture because we have instruction, we have, we have wisdom in the spirit. We can live in such a way, even in the context of a fallen culture, in a way that allows our light to shine. This is where wisdom and community and the means of grace come in and matter so much to us. Because certain situations, you're going to handle it one way. In certain situations, you may handle it another. And based on your giftings, you may do two different things. This is where we need each other. This is why we need to be in community such that we're being challenged by these things. And thinking through how then we should live. But notice what Paul does as, as this is the theological reason for all of that, notice what he says. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, if grace needed to appear, what does that mean about its presence prior to that? It wasn't here. It means that there was no means of salvation apart from that which God provides. So that's why we can say, by grace alone, through Christ alone. He sent one. Because remember, how did our first father do with the one command that he was supposed to keep? The one? He blew it. He blew it big time for all of us. That's why we needed the second and last Adam. 
which is Christ. So Paul is making it clear there is nothing in you. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing provided inherently. There's no good work that you can do to be saved. Grace had to come in from the outside. God had to take on flesh and come to us, not us become God and go to him. You understand? That's critical because I think some of us operate under the presupposition that no, 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 no. This is not true. I mean... You can, I think you could be good enough for God to, you know, like you. You can dress it up enough. You can give enough. You can serve enough. You can say enough or not say enough, and it'll all be okay. Is that what this says? Is that what the Bible teaches us? No. In fact, for you to take the name of the Lord in vain, which, by the way, we talked about this in a small group on Saturday, taking the name of the Lord in vain is not you using a cuss word next to God's name or Yahweh or Jeshua or any of that stuff. Taking the name of the Lord in vain is to say you are a Christian and then to live against that. To take someone's name means to say you are married to them. It means that you're in covenant with them. So when we take the name of the Lord in vain, what we are doing is saying, yeah, I'm a Christian in confession, but our lives are utterly inconsistent with the confession. Know that you are violating the third commandment. That's critical because that's what Paul's saying. Don't do. Live in such a way, counter to the culture, that you're not taking the name of the Lord in vain. And that it doesn't come from you. You don't decide. Grace comes to us. That's how much God loves us. And when we were deserving of judgment and we were his enemies, that he would come, take on flesh. Not just take on flesh so he could tell us how wrong we were, right? Jesus didn't show up wagging his finger and saying, this is why you, you deserve judgment. This is why when you burn, it'll be worth it. And we're going to laugh. Just want to let you guys know that. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to say, no. No, God loves you. For God so loved this world that Christ comes into it. Grace comes to us and says, not only do I love you, I will drink to the dregs the cup that is given to me, even though I would ask that it would pass for me, even though I will cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I will do it all. I will endure all of the shame for the joy that is set before me because of what it will do for you, sons and daughters. What a, what a gift. And that's the freight of Paul's first phrase. And he goes on to say that, that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. Now, let me, let me make clear. Salvation is not only the first part. It's not only justification. It's not only the removal of our guilt. Salvation is the removal of your guilt, the removal of God's wrath, or the satisfying of God's wrath. And it is the equipping of the saint for the work of the ministry. And it is the full bringing you all the way home in glorification and amen. Salvation is a full process, not partial. It's not. So am I saying, let's, let's, let me clear this up. Am I saying with my Lutheran brothers, that we have no part in sanctification. No, because it's the next part. Listen to what it says. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Let me pause right there for a second. So grace, not only does it, does it justify us, it also trains us. 
The work of Christ, the work of the Spirit, the means of grace are all part of the training. And why do we need training? Because we don't have it all together. And we won't till Jesus comes back. So the training never ends. The training is something that is ongoing. That's the nature of this verb here, is it goes on. It is something that we need the entirety of the now and the not yet. And we need to be trained because we, we are not, we don't get it all right now. And it says that you get to participate. We participate in our sanctification. This is the part where the Father is saying, listen, there's this amazing story. And I want to welcome you into it. And I want you to be able to see and be part of what is unfolding in this world. I don't want to use just the rocks and the trees. I want to use you. I want you to be able to appreciate the beauty of all that redemption is. I'm welcoming you in. How many of you have ever had someone you look up to invite you into something? And how you getting to participate in being invited in instead of just standing on the, on the outskirts and watching them be amazing. They say, come in and, and participate. And you got a lot of latitude. You got a lot of freedom here in Christ. You're going to mess this up. And I'm still going to love you. You're not going to get this right. You're going to read passages in the Bible that are crystal clear, and you, in your hard-headedness, are going to beat your head against that wall and kick against those goads. I'm still going to love you. I'm going to correct you because a father who loves his children disciplines them. Right? And so, he's saying, step into the story and use all that I have given you to be able to see just how glorious I and this story are to you. And so he's saying, training so that we can renounce, renounce ungodliness. Now, what does the word godly mean? Got to be one person who remembers, who has an extra jewel and a crown in heaven. Shandor, are you that person? What does it mean to be godly? Yeah, to be like God, meaning you care about redemption more than you care about anything else. You care about things being reconciled. You are moved by the redemptive work of God in this world. You now have the redeemed eyes to see all of the places where he is at work. Where others only see darkness, you can see the light even if it is dim. You can see it. You can see a smoking flax. You would not break off a bruised reed. That means being godly. That means being part of the redemptive story that you want to be in with what God is doing. What does it mean to renounce worldly passions? Well, that's pretty easy. That means all the things that the world says important, says that they're important, that you should chase all of these things. You should chase after status and glory. What's interesting is how often that just doesn't satisfy. Probably the single greatest athlete of all time, and this is debatable, but Michael Jordan is one of, the, they say he's one of the saddest people on the planet because he no longer can do what he once did and what he once did was not enough. He's called the greatest basketball player of all time. There's nothing higher. He's still not satisfied. Tom Brady, when they ask him, and this guy's one, he's my favorite player in the world, Tom Brady. <laughs> That's actually a joke. I just say that for effect. 
But Tom Brady, when asked, is it enough? What did he say? No. Always got to have more. Rockefeller, who is richer than anybody, I think, it's hardly ever been in history, with the exception of maybe Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great. When they asked him, how much is enough? A little bit more. Ever are we satisfied with anything that we gain by worldly passion? The beauty of the gospel is that we, as Paul will say at the end of 2 Corinthians, that we could, we could find joy in everything. That we are the people who've been set free to take joy in every circumstance and let the light shine in the darkness. Amen? We have been given something so great that we could actually enjoy hunger. Which I don't enjoy very much. Just got to be honest with you. We have something so wonderful that we could enjoy being made fun of. That we could find joy in persecution as Christ did. Not in some weird way, but in the deepest sense of knowing who and what we are and what has been purchased for us for all time. And it is grace that trains us, trains us to renounce those things. Notice it doesn't say grace makes you renounce those things. How many of you feel like grace makes you renounce anything? I wish it did. Make it a whole lot easier. But it doesn't. It's a, it's a battle, isn't it? And Paul recognizes. And you participate in your sanctification. And then he goes on to the positive elements. He says... And, and it also trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, those terms we've already kind of dealt with, but it trains us to not only reject, say no to, which a lot of us, that's, that's as much energy as we have, right? I said no to those. I, just, I mean, the victory is in saying no. No, the victory is in saying no and then taking and going further into the yes of which Christ is both the yes and the amen and the promises of God. And so it's not only that we reject, but we step forward and use our gifts and our passions and our energy and all that the Lord has given us for his glory. That we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, which represents itself in redemption and the mission going forward. So it is grace that trains us in this, but it is we who choose. We who choose to say no and to say yes, both of which are necessary in order for the life of the church to matter in the life of the world. Then he goes on and he says, not only are you to look back to the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ for these things, you need to look forward as well because it is what is, what is accomplished that you don't have to work towards. So you don't, you don't actually have to work out anything. It's all blank slate. It is all blank palette. It is all beautiful for you to work out with fear and trembling. You have such freedom. If only we could get that we have such freedom instead of walking around ensnared and enshackled and enslaved as we so often do. But he says, look forward, waiting for our blessed hope means it's a sure hope. That means that it is a hope that is good for us. You don't need to fear. If you're in Christ, him coming back is not for you to fear. There's no judgment for you. 
He's going to come back as a gatherer to say to us little chickens, come on home. Come near to the Father and enjoy all that has been purchased for you because you've been bought with a price. You are not your own. It is this blessed hope that we we look forward to. It's not up for grabs. Good versus evil is not in any sense the yin and the yang or the Star Wars version of this. No, it is finished. I know that's hard for us to get our head around, especially as we look around at the world. The Bible made it clear, though it does not look like he reigns right now, Trust me, he does. What is it that keeps you all from destroying yourselves worse than you currently are? What is it that says to the sea, you can only go so far? So we look forward to what has been promised and accomplished for us and that will appear in the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, Right? That's who we are without Christ. We are utterly lawless. We don't care about anything. We do what we want. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now that is baptismal language, that purification, to be washed clean again, to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've been purified for what? To now go and figure it out for ourselves? No, no, no. You've, again, you've been bought with a price. Your body is not your own. Would that we could understand this from very small on up because most of the damage that gets done is from middle school up. Middle school through college is probably the most damaging physical, mental time in all of our lives. And would that we loved middle schoolers and high schoolers and college students enough to get involved in their lives as some of you are doing and amen and thank you for what you're doing and how you're serving, but more of us would at least be praying because this is the eye of the needle in many respects. It is the damage that will occur from middle school through college that they will spend, I will spend, many of you are spending the rest of your lives trying to untangle. So that we would love that crowd of little Cretans. I guess it was a joke. But God purifies himself, right? for himself, for his possession. Why? A people who are zealous for good works. Are you zealous for good works? Are you, do you get excited about redemptive opportunities? Do you, does it move you at all to be able to pray with someone else? Does it move you at all to be able to share the gospel with someone else? Does it move you at all to be able to be generous to someone else? Does it move you at all to be able to participate in reconciliation of any and every kind? Because if not, something is wrong. Is that heavy? Yes. Do I wish something else were true for my own self because I'm selfish too? Yes. I wish that the statement that that he saves all was a universalistic statement. I do. Then we wouldn't have to do anything and we just get to wait for the final coming of Christ. We can just hang out, have a good time. I don't have to make anybody mad. I don't have to challenge anybody. I don't have to see what I shouldn't see and all that stuff. That's not what's true. What's true is there's a between the now and the not yet in which we have been fashioned into the image that we were intended to be in in the first place. And given the work that we were given in the first place, 
to shape this world, though it is fallen and the material is much more toxic than it used to be. Yet it has been redeemed in Christ such that there are things that we can accomplish, things that we can do that are good, that make a difference and change lives for generations, not just for us. And so, God God is calling us through Paul's words to remember who and whose we are, to be disciples of good theology, remembering by looking back to the finished work of Christ and the death on the cross and the resurrection and his ascension and looking forward to his return because that is the fullness of salvation. Without the fullness, you have a stillborn faith and it can't bring you all the way home. You can't carry yourself all the way home. And the means of grace are given to us to train and remind us. That's why we call them means of grace. That's why the table is a reminder. That's why baptism, we're going to have a baptism next week. We need to be reminded of who and whose we are. And what a gift that the Lord gives us these constant reminders. Because we forget, don't we? And it doesn't take long for us to forget. It doesn't take long for us to get distracted. It doesn't take long for us to return to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's what shakes us sometimes. We think, I ought to be better than what I am. No, actually, you ought to be worse, except for Christ. And would that you would be able to remember and grow in who you are and whose you are so that you could do the things that he's prepared for you to do beforehand, these good works. Now, some of you, are, this is landing so heavy on you. I can see it in some of your faces. Because you, you're, you're thinking, man, I've got to save the whole thing. Well, that's arrogant, so stop it. You're not, not going to save anything. Jesus does the saving, but you are welcomed into the work that is already ongoing. Don't make so much out of yourselves. Rightly remember who and whose you are. Yes, Jesus came for you, but not to save you because he was insufficient in being able to make it all work, right? It's not like he's been for a couple thousand years going... I don't know what I'll do until Cameron comes along. So we're just going to have to wait. We're just going to have to wait. And he's only got like a, I don't know, 50 or 60 years on this plant, so we better use him while we can. And he blew 28 of it being a jerk. It's not what this is about. No, don't put all that kind of pressure on yourselves. That's why he says, look back. Look back to what Christ has done. Look forward to what Christ will do. And in between that, Walk in the power of the Spirit with all the means of grace given to you. Amen? And He gives us stuff every single day. You ain't got to travel far, do you? It's in your own families. It's in your own home. It is your next-door neighbor. It is at your job. It is at your school. It is all around you. There ain't just lost people in Iraq. There's not just people hurting in China. They're hurting here, right next to you. Some in these chairs. I wouldn't point anybody in particular, by the way. I wouldn't just this middle section particularly hurting. All of you. What does John Calvin say about this? He says, Paul means that God's grace should instruct us so that we live the right sort of lives. The right sort of lives. Well, godly lives. God, lives that glorify God. Lives that call people into the family. Lives that don't say to people, no, you're not welcome here. Some are all too quick to use the preaching of God's mercy as an excuse for licentiousness. Now, licentiousness just means you get to do whatever you want. 
No, God's mercy doesn't say you get to do whatever you want. God's mercy says, I'm going to empower you to do what I wanted you to do in the first place. While carelessness keeps other people from thinking about the renewal of their lives, but the revelation of God's grace necessarily brings with it exhortations to a godly life. Don't mistake grace as something that allows you to not worry about how you live. No, grace makes it possible for you to actually live in a way that is glorifying to God between the now and the not yet. If there's any confusion about that, let's talk or talk to somebody you trust. One of our elders. Too often we make grace into something that just allows us to do whatever we want. Well, you could do that before grace, remember? Before you were a Christian, you actually were more free actually. You had it better in that sense. But grace now actually makes it possible for you to be a vessel for God's glory and participate in the story. So let me ask you, what are some of the ways that you are being trained or training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Do you actively think about the things that are unique to you that you struggle with and what are you doing to deal with them? Because here's the thing, you're not going to accidentally get better at these things. You're not going to accidentally one day look up and go, I don't struggle with that anymore. I didn't even think about it. I've been doing it, but I ain't been thinking about it. No, you, you must be active because your enemy is active. And then on, that's the negative side. But then what are some of the ways that you're training to live in a self-controlled, upright, and godly fashion? How are you cultivating a desire for good works and redemption? Because if you're not cultivating it, guess what? It doesn't come. Natural. It just doesn't. This is my job. I swim in this every day, and it does not come more natural. In fact, it's more dangerous for me because it looks like I'm doing stuff. Right? Like I put on a pair of sunglasses, sit at the coffee shop and have a copy of Calvin's Institutes open and I just sleep. Looks like I'm doing something. No, I'm not. If I'm not careful, if I don't train in the same way with the same grace that you need, if I don't work at this, if I don't cultivate good works, guess what? I get hollowed out and swept away just like you. It is not easier for me. In fact, I'm worthy of double judgment. The stakes are even higher. Would you pray for me in that? So, what are you doing to cultivate? It's an important thing to think about. And this is one of the hopes that we have for some of the small group ministry that we'll be starting is that this will be a place, or any of the groups that you're involved in, that what you're doing is cultivating redemptive things. Right? Cultivating and, and being able to be trained in the means of grace. So what does Titus 2, 11 through 15 teach us? One, that we're to look back to the first coming of Christ that brought salvation by grace alone. It's, it's a, as we look back to that, we recognize we can't do this. We can't save ourselves. Two, the same grace compels us to holiness. Did you know that grace actually compels us to holiness? Not the opposite, not lets us off the hook of holiness. And did you know holiness is not actually a cuss word? Three, we look forward to the blessed hope of Christ's return by grace alone. We remember that not only did Christ do what he did at the beginning, he will do what he will do at the end to make it all complete. That your salvation, your salvation is dealt with 
John Stott says this about this passage. The deliberate orientation of our lives, this looking back and looking forward, this determination to live in the light of Christ's two comings. Did you hear that? This determination. Are you determined to live in the light of Christ's two comings, the first and the last? This determination to live in light of Christ's two comings, to live today in light of yesterday and tomorrow, this should be an essential part of our daily discipline. We need to say to ourselves regularly the great acclamation, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. For then our present duties will be inspired by the past and future epiphanies of Christ. The beauty of this table is that this table declares to us that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. And so, on a regular basis, we have the opportunity to again be reminded of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, something we need to be reminded of because we forget, don't we? We just do. If the elders would go ahead and come forward. And so this table, the beautiful thing about this table is it gives us a tangible word. It takes and makes visible that which we talk about, and you get to hold it, and you get to taste it. Even though it's small in portion, it reminds you that things that are as small as a mustard seed can have a tremendous impact. And so as we take of this table today, may you think to yourself, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And may you think of that in light of how that affects how then you now live. And may you consider how that grace that is in all of that, the death of Christ, the risenness of Christ, and the coming again of Christ, empowers you to live in a way now that is pleasing. May this table nourish you to live godly lives, to renounce ungodliness and renounce worldly passion. For those of you who struggle with any variety of things on a regular basis, this table should be of help to you. Not because it's a little piece of bread. That's where we go wrong is not in not considering what it represents and really meditating on the fullness of what the table means. You eating a little piece of bread is not going to help you with your porn addiction. It's just not. You drinking a little cup of juice is not going to help you with any other sort of addiction that you may have. But the death of Christ, the risenness of Christ that allows you to walk in newness of life, and the coming again of Christ, now that, that can change you. Amen? And so... As we partake of these things today, it is critical that you only take if you're a Christian. If you don't have that death of Christ and that risenness of Christ and the coming again of Christ as your hope, if that's not what moves you, don't eat it because this, this stuff ain't going to help you. In fact, it can lead you astray into accursedness. So only those who profess Christ as Savior and their own fallenness or to take of this table. Other folks who shouldn't take of this table are those who reject forgiveness. If you can look at someone else and say, I hope you're not in heaven and I hope you burn in hell, you can't take of this table. Now you might be in some sort of reconciliation process or you might be trying to work through some of these things with someone else. You need the nourishment of this table to make it through that. Amen? Not everything is resolved yet, but as long as you're willing to work on it, this table will help nourish you, not because it's bread and juice, but because it represents the body and blood of Christ.
If you are visiting us from another church and that church has sanctioned you, that church has placed you under discipline, you can't take at this table either. That needs to be reconciled. That needs to be worked through. I don't know. I don't know of anybody who's in that sense or case, but that's to your own conscience. So know that everyone else, everyone else who's fumbling, bumbling, stumbling in the kingdom of God, in the name of Christ, you need this table. And it is for you that Christ has given it to us for this day. And this table is a reminder of everything we've just talked about. This table is the nourishment for everything we've been talking about. So, on the last evening that Christ would spend with his disciples before going to the cross, he took bread. And he put it before them just as an example, as a visible word to them. And he said, this, this is my body. And he took and he broke it. He said, it's broken for you. And in that breaking of the bread and the brokenness of the body of Christ, what we are granted is the taking away of all of our guilt and shame and the satisfaction of, Christ, of God's wrath in full so that you don't have to walk under the guillotine of judgment any longer. Because of the broken body of Christ, you are free and free indeed. As you take of the element, and each of us will hold it, we'll take together as family at the end, but as you hold it, I want you to meditate on how Christ truly, in the brokenness of his body, has set you free, free to be trained to renounce ungodliness and worldliness, worldly passions, and to live under the circumstances of being able to be self-controlled, upright, and godly. Meditate on that and pray that the Spirit would use just this little square, tasty as it may be, to nourish you deep, deep down. Let me pray for the element. Father, thank you for the broken body of Christ and all that it has purchased for us, that it has made us yours. We have been, become your possession. As a result of that, would you use this bread to nourish us, to make us zealous for good works, to use the gifts you've given us, to enjoy the fruit of the kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.